Check and see you got a wire on in there, brother. See that bag? You don't touch me. Hey, you little dickhead. Keep your hands off me. You want to get up them fucking stairs, you're going to go through me. You go tell your little friend that if he thinks I'm a fatty, don't drip. It's okay, Jack. Well, go on up, tough guy. So what's in the briefcase, doctor? We're the ones who fronted the 30 grand and agreed to do this on your turf. Before you touch shit, I want to see the funny money. Okay. You're beautiful. Turn around. Right there, asshole. Hands on top of the locker. Go on, grab the top of the fucking locker. That's right, you're under arrest, moron. Go on, cuff the ape. How you doing, pal? Huh? This is from Jimmy Hart from the desert. Remember this? Suck on that for a while. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick?
Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 359, To Live and Die in L.A. And this is listener request number 57, courtesy of Chris S. And we are giving him the last initial because we have another Chris coming up, I think maybe next month in the listener request order. So A lot of name crossover. Well, we only have a couple of listeners and they all have the same name. (laughs) (laughs) One thing the listeners do have in common, they love William Friedkin and they're in good company. Yeah, it definitely seems like there are certain reoccurring things that pop up in the listener request, and I would not have thought that Friedkin would be one of those things. But everyone, I guess, got excited that we covered Killer Joe a couple years ago. I think that was the one that did it. Yeah, it's sort of become a William Friedkin podcast, really. Because now we've done Bug, and To Live and Die in L.A., and The Exorcist. He's a cool director. It's a wild career, and... Really stylistically unlike anyone, any filmmaker that I'm familiar with. Yeah, he's definitely a throwback to a different time, a very, I think, underappreciated filmmaker and an underrated film of his that doesn't really get discussed very much, wasn't really a monster hit or anything. I know. Well, you know, he makes French Connection, which is definitely like a quintessential 70s crime movie, and then there's this, which doesn't have the acclaim of the French Connection, but I would say very much an 80s, 80s to the max crime movie. Right, and not necessarily in the way that Fast Times or Heathers or anything. It's not about the fashion or even the language, but just the grindhouse violence. It feels very influenced by cocaine. Aviators, leather jackets. Collars popped. Art. (laughs) Art and counterfeiting. For some reason, art seemed very big in the 80s. I feel like that was the biggest time for art. (laughs) (laughs) It was the 80s and the Renaissance. Yep, and that was it. Before we go much further with To Live and Die in L.A., let's remind everyone to follow the show on X slash Twitter at GreatestPod. And you can reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com, where you can request a movie like Chris. We are now charging $100, although no one has stepped up to pay that amount. We found the market rate. (laughs) To be fair, though, to ask someone to give you $100 and then also say, we probably aren't going to do this until December (laughs) is sort of a hard sell. (laughs) See if you can hang around until then. But we do have one spot available. (laughs) We'll try to get you in by the end of the year. If you have any questions or would like more information, greatestpod at gmail.com for listener requests. We also have free stickers that we can send to you. And we'd love to hear your anecdotes about movies. We'd love to read emails on the show. We're going to read one from Chris in a minute to tell us a little bit about his relationship with To Live and Die in L.A. But we're also taking your movie reviews, movie experiences, movie memories, anything like that. Or if you just would like to introduce yourself to the fellow ass clowns, whatever you'd like to do. Finally, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you have found us. And if you get a chance, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To Live and Die in L.A. was released in 1985. It was directed by William Friedkin with a screenplay by Friedkin and Gerald Petovich based on Petovich's 1984 novel of the same name. The budget 
for the film was $6 million, and the box office came in at $17.3 million. Gotta love that title. I, I'm sorry. I'm looking at your Kino Lorber 4K right now, which I also own, but I, if I see that title and that cover, that's like a, an immediate buy, a blind buy of the century. Yeah, I would agree with that, which is why I found it to be a little strange that I had never even heard of this movie until probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, something like that. I knew who William Friedkin was from The Exorcist, but I was sort of under the impression that he hadn't really made that many great films because a lot of his films are sort of under the radar to casual people. And I knew about Bug, but I probably hadn't even seen that movie 10 years ago. I'm not sure when I first saw that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, To Live and Die in L.A. was just this random title, and I kept thinking, it must not be that good because I've never seen it, and I hadn't heard of it for the longest time. But then when I finally checked it out, I thought, wow, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah, I know. I love the, this freaking tagline, and I don't know if this is from when the movie came out, but it's just hilarious how long this is. Yeah. A federal agent is dead, a killer is loose, and the city of angels is about to explode. <laughs> Like, I'm not really sure that that fits the movie, but it, it's got me hooked. It kind of is, I guess. I okay. don't know about the set to explode. Yeah, it right. seems like they're kind of working in anonymity. It doesn't yeah. seem like anyone gives a shit about what they're doing. I, totally. L.A. doesn't care. It is strange when you realize that the main thing going on is all about counterfeiting. <laughs> you would expect well, yeah. something a little bit more world-threatening, but I, mean, I guess counterfeiting is big business. Yeah, well, the first time I saw this was when we did a Friedkin Weekend movie night. Oh, yeah. And I think in the beginning of the movie, friend of the show, Brian Bell, pointing out that, oh, yeah, this isn't this about a Secret Service guy because that's who's actually like responsible for investigating counterfeit money, which I definitely had no idea. Yeah. I, I, I was like, they protect the president. That's it. Well, Petijevic is a Serbian-American writer of crime novels, most notably to live and die in L.A., but he also had some of his books adapted into other movies, The Sentinel and Boiling Point. He was a United States Secret Service special agent from 1970 to 1985. So he knows from which he speaks. Evidently, this is something that Secret Service people do. I kind of assumed it was just a small group that was just protecting presidents and former presidents and other very important people. But evidently, there is a wing that... Is involved in this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I guess we see the ones that aren't picked for protecting the president. Because I gotta say, the ones we meet in this movie don't seem that great. Yeah, they're constantly losing. <laughs> well, it does seem as if a big portion of the people they work with are paper pushers, but they sort of our lead character and his partners are more in that outlaw cop mold, right? Sort of a precursor to John McClane from. Die Hard, who is just a cop. Yeah. But these guys are supposed to be Secret Service agents, but they don't wear suits or anything. No, other than in the beginning of the movie. Friedkin was given Petyevich's novel in manuscript form and found it very authentic. The filmmaker was also fascinated by the absolutely surrealistic nature of the job of a Secret Service agent outside of Washington, D.C., when the film deal was announced, Petyevich was investigated by a rival for a pending office promotion and felt, quote, a lot of resentment against me for making the movie and some animosity against me in the Secret Service Hmm. existed, exasperated by the agent in the Los Angeles field office who suddenly resigned a few weeks after initiating the investigation. 
SLM Productions, a tribunal of financiers, worked with Friedkin on a 10-picture, $100 million deal with 20th Century Fox, but when the studio was purchased by Rupert Murdoch, one of the financiers pulled the deal and took it to MGM, which works out for us because I think had it been through Fox, we may not get that nice Kino Lorber 4K because they made a deal with MGM. (laughs) The basic plot, characters, and much of the dialogue of the film is drawn from Petivich's novel, but Friedkin added the opening terrorist sequence, the car chase, and clearer earlier focus on the showdown between the two main characters, Chance and Masters, Petovich said that Friedkin wrote a number of scenes, but when there was a new scene or a story needed to be changed, that he, Petovich, wrote it. The director admits that Petovich created the characters and situations that he used a lot of dialogue, but that he wrote the screenplay, not Petovich. So they kind of disagreed <laughs> about who was doing what. Wow. I do know that the car chase and that opening sequence is not part of the book, so he at least was adding stuff. Now, who wrote those added scenes, I don't know. As mentioned, you can email the program, greatestpod at gmail.com, and our listener request came today from Chris S., who also wrote us an email. All right, Chris S. Which we encourage those of you who have pending listener requests to do as well. It adds a little bit of material to the episode and context, which I think helps a lot. Kind of makes us feel like we're not just broadcasting to no one. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> there's always that <laughs> yeah. lingering fear <laughs> just thought why are you two even talking into microphones it seems like you're just talking to each other all right all right all right you go ahead you go ahead you keep it secret but you remember this when you control the mail you control information chris writes happy new year to you and to matt mm. He did write this back in January, although I told him we would read it when we did his episode. Yeah, I was just thinking, is it a happy new year? I'm not really feeling that so far. It's Chris. I am the guy who submitted the listener request for To Live and Die in L.A. Fingers crossed you haven't recorded it yet. I like that sort (laughs) of (laughs) optimism that we would have gotten to it by January 9th or whenever this came in. You mentioned on the show that you like hearing the details of listeners' experience with the specific films i.e. where, when, etc. For To Live and Die, I saw its initial release sometime in November 1985 at a drab strip mall-looking multiplex theater called The Plaza. That's amazing. He did provide a link, which I'm going to click later. Still active? I don't know. Of course, did you not hear when I said later? (laughs) About the clicking? (laughs) My question was to Chris S., not to you. (laughs) Of course, the theater was leveled years ago (laughs) and is now a big box store. I went with my older brother and some friends from the neighborhood on a Saturday night. We loved William Peterson and his voice. You could tell immediately he was from Chicago. And late in the film, when his character goes off about the mid-80s Chicago Bulls, we were hooked. It was really my older brother who got me into films of New Hollywood in our early teenage years. We ripped through 70s films like Taxi Driver, A Clockwork Orange, The French Connection, We also had a chip on our shoulder with Chicago films, Blues Brothers, Thief, The Color of Money, and Chicago filmmakers like Friedkin, Michael Mann, etc. Lastly, being from Chicago, Siskel and Ebert was a must-see TV watch, and being the burgeoning film geek, I watched it religiously back in the 80s. It was probably Siskel and Ebert who highlighted To Live and Die, and mentioning Friedkin is what drove us to see this film. Thanks, guys. Love your show. Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. Definitely. So it sounds like they 
paved paradise and put up a box store. Well, that's most of America. Yeah. Ebert gave To Live and Die in L.A. four out of four stars. He loved it. So I would imagine his glowing review probably got you into the theater. I'm a little bit younger. I was turning two when Mm. this movie came out. So, no, I did not see this in the theater. I was not alive. Yeah. Matt wasn't even born yet. So. You've predated us a little bit, but I can't help but be a little jealous. I, w- I would love to go to a drab multiplex at a strip mall to see To Live and Die in L.A. I was just thinking, Matt wasn't even alive yet. What a time that was for everyone in the world. I know. <laughs> what a time for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much hope ahead of us back then. Before we even were going to jump into the plot, I just wrote, this movie is really fucking cool and underrated. Definitely. That was my summation to kick us off, to get us into it. Yeah, I love the locations. And these bars that they're at, like, down by the shore. Yeah, it's a lot of industrial area of Los Angeles. Factories, refineries, warehouses. It's very similar looking to some of the places that was in Savage Street. That is true. It's definitely, like, the dark corners of L.A. Yeah. It's not a very, like, glorified Los Angeles. The film opens with a foiled assassination attempt on President Reagan. Secret Service agents Richard Chance, played by William Peterson. We just did Manhunter, and we did Thief not that long ago, it feels like. And it does seem like we're kind of turning into a William Peterson retrospective now, after years ago making that joke about Mickey Rourke, of all people. But we go on these weird runs sometimes with the show. Well, he was having a moment during this slice of time. His partner's name is Jimmy Hart, like the wrestling manager. <laughs> the I was like the, ma- the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart out here. <laughs> He's got his megaphone. He's played by Michael Green, and they are the heroes of the night. Basically, they're playing poker, waiting for Reagan to make a speech. They're in some hotel, and I think it's a shift change or something, and Chance notices a suspicious-looking guy pretending to be a waiter. There's nothing, no food on the room service tray, and he realizes that this guy's going to be a terrorist. One thing about this character and maybe what William Peterson is also bringing to the character is he is just ready to go. Yeah, he definitely is a a live wire, very similar to his performances in other films. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like Michael Douglas in the 80s, too. It feels like he could ripping his shirt open at any time, throwing somebody up against the wall. Just a yeah. lot of passion and everything. For sure. By the way, I wanted to clarify that. I, I realize that Peterson's part in Thief is very small, and some people may not remember he's actually in it. Yeah. But I associate him now with all the Chicago stuff. You can definitely group these movies together. Like I think Thief is part of that. Universe. Well, yeah, we'll get into that, too, yeah. because there's a longstanding rumor that Michael Mann sued Friedkin over this movie because oh, really? of its similarity uh, to yeah. Miami Vice, but that is actually not true. But a lot of people believe it. And I think I probably said that oh. on some previous episode or something. It sounds familiar. But I don't think it actually ever happened. Friedkin had a $6 million budget to work with while the cast and crew worked for relatively low salaries. As a result, he realized that the film would have no movie stars in it William Peterson was acting in Canada when he was asked to fly to New York City and meet with the director. Half a page into his reading, Friedkin told him he had the part. The actor was drawn to the character of Chance as someone who had a badge and a gun and how it not only made him above the law but also above life and death in his head. The actor found the experience of being this character and making the film amazing and intoxicating. 
Gary Sinise was close to getting the part, and when he didn't, he was the one that suggested Peterson to Friedkin. Since this was 1985-ish, probably 84 when they were casting, of course, Harrison Ford, Richard Gere, Jeff Bridges, all (laughs) considered, but they would have been asking probably for way too much money for this type of movie. I could have seen Gary Sinise in like the Vukovic role, which ends up being a nobody. (laughs) How dare you? Pankow, he's from Mad About You. All the seasons. That's true. Including the reboot. He did have a big Mad About You run. (laughs) Well, he was just Peterson's friend. Yeah. And Peterson was like, how about this guy? And Friedkin was like, I don't care. (laughs) I don't think Friedkin was worried about the actors that much. (laughs) He's like, what do we got to pay him? If it's next to nothing, hired. (laughs) They just showed him a picture of Pankow's hairline. He was like, yeah, you'll work for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) He looks like a regular guy. As I said, there's a lot of similarities to Miami Vice, and I think the character that Peterson's playing is very similar to Manhunter, which had not come out yet. And then, as I was alluding to, there is a an old Hollywood legend that Michael Mann sued Friedkin over plagiarism. There was this whole thing about him stealing the entire concept from a Miami Vice episode, and he supposedly lost this lawsuit, Michael Mann. Mm. But no, not true. According to Friedkin himself, he said, Michael Mann and I have been good friends for 30 years and nothing like this ever happened. And as we know, Mann considered casting Friedkin as Hannibal Lecter in oh, Manhunter, which was a year later. Yeah. Which I think that's when I mentioned it because I was confused. I was like, I thought Mann right, had sued right, him or yeah. something. <laughs> Evidently not. The opening is very cool. It's drenched in red. It definitely conjures up memories of sunburn, but also confusion. Yeah. Where it gets very hot, and then you look into the horizon, and everything feels wavy, mm-hmm. like that kind of heat. Right. That's what the opening feels like, but then the text and the color I know, of like the, the text. the font that they're using. It's super 80s, yeah. and it looks really cool. There's definitely like some 80s jams bumping through most of the movie, too. Well, most of the songs are Wang Chung. Right, right. Which is perfect. Yep. We'll get into that in a second. But the cinematographer, Robbie Mueller, who shot Paris, Texas mm-hmm. the year before, wow. longtime collaborator with not only Vim Vendors, but Lars von Trier. He shot Breaking the Waves and some of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Legendary. And the movie looks incredible. Definitely. According to Friedkin, the main reason he chose Wang Chung to compose the soundtrack was because the band, quote, stands out from the rest of contemporary music. What they finally recorded has not only enhanced the film, it has given it a deeper, more powerful dimension. He wanted them to compose the score for his film after listening to the band's previous studio album, Points on the Curve. From 84, he was so taken with the album that he took one of the songs straight off of it, Wait, and used it as part of the soundtrack. Oh. Wait plays at the end of the credits of the film. Every song on the soundtrack, excluding the title song and Wait, was written and recorded within a two-week period. Only after Wang Chung saw a rough cut of the film did they produce the title song. Oh, wow. Friedkin had specifically asked them not to do a song titled To Live and Die in L.A. because he thought it would be too cheesy, but they did it anyway and then played it for him. He, of course, loved it because it is the defining song. Of the movie. Yeah, Wang Chung, everybody kind of associates them with being uncool because <laughs> of the song, Everybody Wang Chung. But yes. their music is actually pretty awesome. That song, Dance Hall Days, which is also in this movie. True, true. It's playing whenever he goes to see the girl at the strip club. Yeah, like, I'm, look, I'm guilty of being in the camp of, yeah, Wang Chung is not cool. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. But yeah, 
I love the soundtrack of this movie. Oh yeah, I listen to the soundtrack on Spotify a lot, actually. At one point, they were trying to get Miles Davis to do the soundtrack. That would have obviously been entirely different. A completely different feel. I could have pictured it being very cool, but just a different... It led me into this whole thought process where what if every movie was sort of like the original Suspiria and there was just multiple soundtracks that you could choose from? Because that would be actually a pretty cool feature to be like, oh yeah, we're releasing To Live and Die in LA in two different versions. There's a Wang Chung version and a Miles Davis version, and they feel completely different. Somehow, Miles Davis, it, it all of a sudden feels like a lot more noir or something. Yeah, and this movie's definitely a neo-noir, but it kind of makes it feel less of neo and yeah. more of regular, even this though I don't know what even counts as differentiating. I, I don't know. I guess like the understated, smooth feel to noir. This is heart pumping. Chance and Hart are then assigned as counterfeiting investigators in the Los Angeles field office. I guess this is supposed to be a reward for saving the president because at this point, Hart has been talking about he's too old for this shit in a line that actually predates Murtaugh from Lethal Weapon. Somehow. But I don't think this was even the first time that that was well, a line. I'm pretty yeah. sure that was just a part of these It's types kind of, of a generic line, but it's definitely like the Murtaugh character's catchphrase. Yes, for sure. Part of it was I think he said it in more than one movie. Well, yeah. <laughs> True. If it would have just been a one-time thing, yeah, yeah it probably would have just been like every other cop that says it. Right. But yeah, I would assume that outside of the film, To Live and Die in L.A., mm-hmm. counterfeiting operations are probably safer to take down than defending the president's life from would-be assassins. Sure. I would think that this is supposed to be the comfy ride off into the sunset for Hart, who only has a few days left on the job, evidently. I know. (laughs) Literally riding off into the sunset. Of course, you know what's going to happen to him. Totally. Chance, we're going to learn soon enough, has a reputation for reckless, impulsive behavior. Right off the bat, you have that really odd bungee jumping scene, which out of context, you're wondering what even is the point. But then you realize it is a little indication as to just who this guy is. It lets you know about yeah. his whole life. He sort of fits into like the Point Break universe, where everything. He is about a, yeah. He adrenaline. is a little bit of a thrill seeker, yeah. but it's more it's more than just chasing thrills. It's that he doesn't think that he can ever be slowed down, stopped, right. killed, arrested, whatever. He can do whatever he wants and get away with it. So it's a weird mix of the impulsive with also the reckless, with also the thrill seeking. Yes, but he also has a badge and a gun. <laughs> And I like that he's a gross character. He Yeah. But you don't even realize that until you're 45 minutes, an hour in, you're like, this guy's actually really shitty. No, I know. It is weird, too. The whole Secret Service thing is weird because that is in your face in the beginning of the movie, but as it goes on, I forget that, and I just start thinking of LAPD or regular-ass cops. They certainly act like regular cops, and a lot of the scenes with the superiors and things of that nature and their co-workers feel like a police station yeah, although yeah. No, there are no uniform true, police true. or anything so there are subtle differences but it feels very familiar to your standard cop movie right right down to the bozo guy in charge of <laughs> yeah. them i don't know what i don't want to say lieutenant or something cause i don't know what rank he actually would be in the right. secret service but their boss who's sort of an idiot played by robert downey <laughs> yeah senior <laughs> yeah I think Robert Downey Jr. was on the set of Less Than Zero at this point. (laughs) Unbeknownst to his superiors in the service, Chance is also corrupt. And we will learn how in all of the grimy details as we go. 
Hart, on the other hand, is a mere three days from retirement. Oh boy. I think we all know what that means. Yeah, they write themselves, but why on earth would you go be snooping around something like this if you're... I mean, if I'm on my last few days before retirement, I'm like showing up late to work, taking off early, hitting the bar with my friends. This is nuts that he's like, uh, let me go snoop around out here. We're getting a little bit of an introduction, not only to the two Secret Service agents, Chance and Hart. Chance, at this point, wearing a mean Joe Green Steelers jersey That's from true. the 70s. Yeah, pretty cool. We're also seeing a young Willem Dafoe. Yes. He seems to be some kind of an artist. He's burning something. Wild how many movies Willem Dafoe is in. No matter what, by no intention, even me trying to not have this be the case, he's always my most watched actor on Letterboxd. (laughs) (laughs) Although John Totoro, also high on the list, who's in this movie. He also pops up. Yeah. Yeah, this would have been very early on for both of them. Right. And that's one of the cool things about to live and die in LA and certainly the legacy of the film is how many noteworthy people came out of it because Peterson was a nobody, Taturo was a nobody, Defoe was a nobody, mm-hmm. Jane Leaves from Frasier pops up, Pankow right. from Mad About You. Yeah. Those were two 90s television titans totally. right there. <laughs> the real artist who created the Rick Masters paintings, Rainer Fetting, a young German modern expressionist is an artist who sold a lot of paintings in Europe and New York and who was very evocative of what Rick Masters would be doing with his art in the film. Defoe spent a lot of time watching him paint. The canvas burned at the film's beginning. If it had not been destroyed, would have sold for a lot of money. Oh, Fetting actually plays that priest later in the film that comes in for one scene oh, when right, they're watching right. from across the street. Gives him like a cookie or something. <laughs> yeah, <a> cookie. <laughs> Willem Dafoe is playing Eric, a.k.a. Rick Masters, who is an artist moonlighting as a counterfeiter, but maybe a counterfeiter moonlighting as an artist. It's not hard to clear, say. but it's an, a really unique, interesting character, this and it guy, reminds me of supervillains from something like James Bond or something. Definitely. Because it, it, it adds this dimension. He is not just a criminal. He's an actual artist. They don't spend a lot of time talking about his process or how he makes art or whatever, but Defoe is such a good uh-huh. actor that you see this dude. He's around the paintings. He looks kind of artistic. Yeah. And you're like, okay, this is an interesting villain. Right. And he, this guy's living like a totally 80s lifestyle. Random warehouses, lofts, and then like, like these driving a Ferrari or whatever it is, a, some kind of a crazy car. I, I don't even know what you call the suggestive dancing that's going on. And oh yeah, a lot of expressionist art, right. expressionist yes, dancing. That's, a, that's the word. Probably slam dance poetry. Uh, yeah, right. Whatever seems to be working. He's swimming in beautiful yeah, women. At absolutely this point. no. And you <laughs> referenced it because of Robert Downey Jr. But this is very much the less than zero Los Angeles. Alone, Hart stakes out a warehouse in the desert thought to be a print house of masters. The way that the movie lays this scene out for us, it feels like a fake out because we're Mm -hmm. watching masters driving away from this place, but evidently we're not watching everything in one linear time. Right, in chronological order. Big mistake by Hart as he shows up and he ends up getting blown away by masters and his bodyguard, Jack... Buddy, 
You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. The violence in this movie is crazy. I was comparing it a lot to Grindhouse level. Yeah, for sure. You see people getting shot in the face and the camera doesn't pull away. Yeah. In a way that you do not see right. in almost any Hollywood film. And this killing is pretty brutal because they definitely pump him with shotguns more than they need to. Like, he's definitely dead and they keep shooting. Yeah, the last blast you yeah. don't actually see. But right. Yeah, you do see him take one to the face. and uh-huh. There's a fair amount of gritty violence in the film. This has a very down and dirty style to it, mm-hmm. which is what Freakin' was going for. As if the camera's entering a situation, as I was explaining to you, it's kind of complicated to maybe explain this, but they weren't even doing blocking in some of the scenes. Yeah. It was like, hey, if the actors want to be in the movie, they'll make sure they're on the camera. Because <laughs> a lot of times, or not a lot of times, pretty much virtually every film, it's blocked out. The actors are walking on spots that have been marked on the floor. Otherwise, the camera would have to be moving constantly to make sure everyone's in the frame. Right. Everything is planned out as to where people are standing, where they're moving, what they're doing. But Freakin' was like, fuck it. Yeah. He really brought more of that run-and-gun style, even though this is a Hollywood MGM movie. These guys, the fact that they're just so ruthless about killing a Secret Service agent here... Yeah. ...gives you a little insight as to the villains we're dealing with, but it's also like, I don't know, ballistics reports not as big of a thing. (laughs) Well, they're probably stolen weapons, and that's a warehouse they're never going to come back to, and et cetera, et cetera. But yes, I would not expect this level of violence when your criminals are just counterfeiting money. Right. I know that that's a serious offense, and they probably don't want to go to jail for a huge amount of time, but you're expecting after a movie opens with a terrorist plot... Yeah. And there's going to be crazy violence and chases and shootouts. You kind of think the villains are going for more than just counterfeiting money. But that's what kind of makes it unique. Totally. A hundred percent agree. Because that grounds it in reality. There are people out there who are always cheating the system. I know counterfeiting money is way harder now than it was in the 80s. But that is very true life. And this guy just happens to be a guy who's like, oh, I'm not going to prison. So, Mm -hmm. of course, I'm going to kill this guy. (laughs) We're going to show you him taking a shotgun blast to the face. Absolutely. A big part of this film and a lot of the the lore and legend that surrounds it is the counterfeiting of the money and how accurate it is. Friedkin was obsessed with authenticity, a huge dedication to authenticity in this film in a way that almost proved to be kind of dangerous because it was working as sort of a how-to. For people who at least knew some of the basics... If you didn't know anything, I don't know there's enough there to start uh, from zero. Filling in the blanks for people. It was like, oh... During the opening, when Masters is printing money, the film crew was actually creating real counterfeit bills. Wow. A convicted counterfeiter was on set showing them how it's done. That's dedication to filmmaking. They were filming out in the desert, and Defoe said that every time a helicopter flew over the building, they were sure it was the police coming to arrest them all. Despite the crew's best efforts, some of the counterfeit bills made for the film did get into circulation, The bill's quality was very, very good, but the Treasury seal on the counterfeits used the letter X, which is not a valid Federal Reserve bank letter. The Secret Service picked up X bills for quite a while after filming Wrapped. Friedkin, in his memoir, The Friedkin Connection, says that the fake money they made was so good that after some of it had left the set, he eventually heard from the Secret Service and a U.S. attorney, After he avoided a confrontation with them, Friedkin states, when the film came out, there were news stories about people trying to make counterfeit money. 
After seeing the step-by-step process in our film, I took some of the 20s, those printed on both sides, of course, put them in my wallet, and spent them in restaurants, shoeshine parlors, and elsewhere. The money was that good. I like that he put that in his biography. I used counterfeit money. That's awesome. At a shoeshine parlor. (laughs) Well, they're not looking too close. But just Friedkin getting his shoes shined. He he literally was a guy born in another era. Absolutely. I mean, he was, but he really lived that life. Getting his shoes shined. Oh, God. Sometime later, after Chance and a team come across the bloody scene in the desert, the film does morph into a bit of a revenge tale. Yeah, for a while, that's what you think the movie is. Chance proclaims to his new partner, John Vukovich, played by John Pankow, who, as I mentioned, was Peterson's friend, mm-hmm. that he will take Masters down no matter what. And the implication there is outside of the law. Yeah. Now, Vukovic is on scene with Chance when they find Hart, and that's sort of our first introduction to him. Yes. Seems like he's just going to be a throwaway side character that you barely meet. Then the next thing, he's sort of inserting himself. He just decides that... It kind of seems like he's obsessed with Chance. There like, is a scene where Robert Downey, I don't know his character name, he tells him, Chance, that he's going to be his new partner. And Chance I know, but I think it's out. after that. I think it's after Vukovic shows up and says, you need a partner. Probably, yeah. First up, Chance and Vukovic bust a man named Carl Cody with counterfeit bills at the airport. Cody's played by John Turturro. Look, this yeah. is how this movie works. Stuff happens, and you have to figure it out yourself, Totally, which is not for everyone. I happen to like it in this movie. It doesn't always work. Sometimes directors go for it, and they can't quite pull it off, and you're just left too confused. But several times in this movie, they're chasing people all of a sudden, and you're like, who the fuck are these people now? And this is the first time, and then there's another time, which is actually extra hilarious because of one of the people. But- they're just random people that they get onto that have counterfeit bills. I guess they're traced back to Masters, but I don't know how they got onto these people or who they even are. I know. You, you don't get a lot of the details as to how these guys are moving along in the investigation. You just are thrown into like the key moments. Right. For this guy, I'm going to come up with my own answer, which would be that Hart had been doing most of the investigative work, and Cody is just a guy that popped up in his notes Yeah, once Vukovic and Chance took the case over. Because whoever Cody is, he's high enough up in the operation where Masters visits him in prison himself. To me, they kind of allude that there's like a a relationship and a friendship there. That these guys have... A friendship, but Masters does try to kill him several times. Well, once it (laughs) becomes a risk... Yeah, there's a working relationship. I don't know. A friendship makes it seem personal. I think it's more working. Yeah. But they've been in it together for a while. Yeah. He does expose himself a lot by coming to the prison. I thought that was weird. Well, when he's talking to the lawyer character, Dean Stockwell, Ben, that swab motherfucker. Yeah. For some reason, he had a child with Elon Musk. Grimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the lawyer Grimes. Who? But but when Masters Masters is talking to Grimes, and Grimes is like, what could Cody give them? And Masters is like, everything. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like there's that many guys. That could expose everything for Masters. It seems that's probably true, but we see so little of what the fuck is actually going on with the operation. True, because it seems 
as if that woman he hangs out with all the time well, yeah. could also give up everything because well, she's constantly around. Yeah, she's a, a top confidant, that's for sure. <laughs> she's a right hand. She's a top something. <laughs> the movie really is one awesome sequence after another because you're plunged into these random chase moments. The thing with Totoro is mostly on foot, but it is in the airport, and in this airport chase where Chance is pursuing Cody, William Peterson revealed in an interview that the head of the airport, who was on the set, disallowed Peterson from jumping up and running on the rail of the horizontal escalator. Having already rehearsed it, though, Peterson really wanted to do it as he felt it was important. (laughs) Director Friedkin told him that he would have to tell him in front of everyone that he couldn't do it, but also, quote, however you feel... You do what you need to do. So basically, go ahead, but I have to act like I'm telling you not to. Before they started filming, Friedkin publicly told Peterson not to jump on the escalator, but once they started filming, Peterson obviously did it anyway, (laughs) as it is shown in the film, much to the chagrin of the airport head. But it's a really cool scene. Airport head. You'll never work in this town again. Yeah, realizing it's L.A. and being like, well, (laughs) never mind. During this time, Masters is brazen enough to visit Cody himself in jail. We're introduced to Bob Grimes, the lawyer played by Dean Stockwell, which this would have been right after his comeback in Paris, Texas, which was also shot by Robbie Mueller. A lot of connections going on. The two agents attempt to get information on Masters by putting one of his criminal associates, attorney Max Waxman, under surveillance. What a name. Waxman is played by Christopher Allport. Vukovic falls asleep on watch, which allows Masters to murder Waxman, who had crossed him. Well, I think it's actually Vukovic's fault because they're taking turns, and he's the one at the window who falls asleep. While at first, Masters' girl, I don't really know what her character's name is. She's played by Deborah Fuhrer, who I was kind of unfamiliar with. Same. I actually watched a movie she was in called Night Angel, but I don't really remember it. Anyway. Sounds promising. She shows up first. They don't think anything of it. They think, oh, this guy's got a date or something. Yeah. But she's really the distraction. And then at that point, I guess Vukovic falls asleep and then Masters sneaks in the back door. And Masters putting on this whole show about, do you know you're under surveillance? You're being watched. If he thinks and knows that to be true, why would he do a, a home invasion here? I love the rain. Yeah, it's groovy. (laughs) Take off your glasses. Come here. How you doing, Max? Oh, Christ. First you ripped me off, then you set up Carl, now you want to fuck my lady. Man, she came on to me, man. I swear it. Oh, what a tragedy. I want my 600K. I didn't have anything to do with getting Cody set up, man. Do you know that your house is under surveillance? Do you know you're living like a fucking animal in the zoo?
Open up, Max. Make good and we'll be friends again. Caper's gone. Come on. While Vukovic wants to go by the book, Chance becomes increasingly reckless and unethical in pursuit of masters. He relies on his sexual extortion relationship with parolee informant Ruth for information. This is weird. This relationship is dark. So let's run through this really quick. Please. First, Waxman is killed. Waxman is played by Allport. The girlfriend of masters is Bianca. That's Deborah Fuhrer. Her friend is Serena, that's Jane Leaves, who I don't believe has any lines, but she's so. in a couple scenes. It seems like they actually are in love with each other, and Masters is just sort of around. Part of the equation? Yeah. He's the money, I guess. Right. He's the lifestyle, but they kind of dig each other more. And then, I don't know how to say this actress's first name, I apologize. I am a fan of her work, because she's in Pet Cemetery too, as well. Darlon... Flugel, mm. she plays Ruth. All of the women in this movie are exceptionally beautiful. Well, Not that that's important, but I'll say it. Sure. <laughs> it should be mentioned. It shouldn't be, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love the surveillance in the rain. I think those shots are unbelievable. The light from the I indoors know. mixing with the outdoors, with the rain in L.A., with that cool-looking house across the street. That's yep. lit really interesting, Waxman's house. I appreciate a villain willing to do it himself to get his hands dirty, and that's kind of the cool part about Masters showing up to kill Waxman himself. Right. He doesn't have a huge crew. It's mostly this girl and then his one henchman. I guess now is as good a time as any to discuss the relationship that Chance has with this woman, Ruth, and this is really the first and biggest indication of what a scumbag Yes. Chance actually is. Because to this point, 
anything that he's done that seems outside the law or a little over the top, you can chalk that up to your standard police movie where a partner's been killed. Nothing too crazy out of the ordinary. But this is a straight extortion where he holds it over this woman's head, his ability to put her back into prison. How he has that ability, I'm not sure. We don't get that. What she did to get mixed up with a Secret Service agent. She might have been a part of some sort of a ring with counterfeit money. I don't know. Well, there's a limited amount of crimes that it could be. I unfortunately, and I know this is a little bit misogynistic, I kind of thought she was busted for prostitution, but I realized later that's only because of how he treats her and the fact that she works at a strip club, Yeah, which is not fair on my part, and I realized that that was a gross way of thinking, but they don't really give you a lot... (laughs) What's wrong with you? <laughs> Do you want to get any more reviews <laughs> to calling us sexist? <laughs> it's something that, thankfully, the more times I've watched the film, the more I've honed in on and realized how uncomfortable this all makes me. Because I think the first time you watch the movie, a lot of this stuff comes at you fast and furious. And you're not really sure what's well, going yeah. on. And you're trying to get your bearings. but And the comfort that he has walking into her house, he just shows up while she's asleep. It makes it seem more intimate than what reality is. Well, that goes along with what Friedkin was going for for the film for sure. In the 2003 making of video, Friedkin saying the films that moved him the most are the ones where it looks like the camera was just peeking in while stuff was taking place. He revealed to have asked the actors in reference to a sex scene between Peterson and Flugel to, quote, make it as real as possible Make it real. (laughs) Peterson, for his part, said Friedkin had all of their trust at all times so that when he said, look, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, there was no argument against it. Lastly, Flugel, who was no longer with us, at one point said she and Billy Peterson trusted each other to make that choice. Whatever that means. Yeah, really? That's cryptic. Everybody goes on and on about a movie we did for Greatest October. That has the reputation, Don't Look Now. I don't really know what happened on Don't Look Now, but this seems like it definitely happened. It sounds that way. And all three principal people just seem to admit it in their own way. (laughs) And I think it's probably happened on a number of films. Obviously, Monster's Ball gets talked about a lot because it seems like you can pretty much see it happening. But- I was expecting, after researching and not having seen this movie in the last five seconds, oh, this must be like a longer sex scene than I was remembering. No. It cuts away. It's like four seconds, and you're like, they went all in (laughs) for that? Now, you do see William Peterson's mostly hard dick, which is fun. And really a great time in 4K. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I have to say that, Since we know that these are actors and this is actually a consensual moment, so despite the circumstances of the characters and the nature of their relationship, the scene is fucking hot. (laughs) Is it not? Yeah, it is, yeah. There's just something about Flugel in this movie, the way she carries herself, her house, her situation. You're like, this is hot to me. This is a house I just want to stop by. She just seems cool. (laughs) She's probably a criminal. (laughs) I told you I'm only interested in Play-Doh. I was reading about the stars. Talked about how the stars are the eyes of God. I think it's true, don't you? No, I don't. If you had any real balls, you'd jump off that bridge. 
same thing happened to Max could happen to me, you know. Did you hear what I said? Nothing's gonna happen to you. Can I ask you something? Sure. What would you do if I stopped giving you information? I'd just like to know. I'd have your parole revoked. You mean that? You'd do that? Chance is so gross and morally objectionable. After the scene of him fucking her, when he's talking to her, when he's sitting around the corner from her bedroom yeah, and he's sitting crouched in a certain way. I was like, is he talking to her while he's taking a shit? Is that her toilet? And then you realize it is her toilet, but he's not taking a shit. Right. I think it's her toilet. I don't know. But he he wasn't. But that's what it looked like. He's yeah, reading yeah. and he's talking to her. I'm like, Jesus, this guy. <laughs> door door wide animal. open. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Up next is another one of those scenes that you're thrown into. He's chasing more suspects. And one of them, you see his face for just a second. Mm. And he was making this real dumb look. Oh. And I was like, where have I seen that fucking face? And it clicked in a second. Seinfeld. Mox's dad mm. in Varsity Blues. No way. Wow. He's making the same face. Yeah. He, that was his move, I think, was that face. Because <laughs> as soon as you see it for that one second, it clicks. Because he's doing the same face all through Varsity Blues. Good Lord. Yeah. That's Thomas F. Duffy from Varsity Blues as second suspect. <laughs> It's a confusion that ultimately works for the film. It keeps the viewer on edge. We don't know who these people are. They're obviously involved, but they seem lower on the totem pole than Totoro's character for sure. Masters attempts to have Cody killed in prison, but he still won't flip after the attempt fails. Masters and Jack then get into a whole altercation with this big guy named Jeff Rice, who is the one they hired to, for the hit. This is all superfluous to the plot, but it all feels very much straight out of Foxy Brown or yeah, something. Yeah, very raw, happening very quickly. Violence, it feels exploitation, but it's maybe all- black exploitation because the characters feel like they're out of the 70s. One of the things that's cool about the violence scenes is whether it's from the police or the Secret Service people, whatever, or the criminals, every attempt at doing anything is so sloppy they yeah. never go smooth. Which I imagine is way more realistic. Yeah. Henchman number one for Masters, he has the drop on these guys, but instead of shooting one of them, he hey, like well, surprises them. I bought that, though, because I didn't know if Masters and him were prepared to take it to, like, w- this is going to end in death. Yeah, maybe. But I don't know. It got escalated pretty quickly. Desperate for a way into Masters' chance convinces a judge to let him take Cody out of prison in an an attempt to set Masters up. Wild. Because Cody realizes that he can use that assassination attempt for his own benefit. Because even the assassination attempt isn't going to get him to flip. But he sees Chance's desperation. So Chance begs this judge who's like, fuck off. You demanded no bail. Now you want him out on some kind of a trip that you're trying to set up? What the fuck? Yeah, really. But then 
Chance has a tantrum, so he's like, all right. But if <laughs> if he gets away from you, I'm going to make you testify in court that he made a fool out of you. <laughs> you have to imagine that Chance ultimately would prefer the fate that he does get in this movie I versus that yeah. because of what a fucking prick he is. But anyway... He takes Cody out. Cody all of a sudden is saying, hey, I want to visit my daughter in the hospital. I cannot believe that Chance goes along with this, even if he believed that his daughter actually was in the hospital. Chance is an idiot. He's so bad. There's multiple seasons. It's not just this one. There's also a moment with Vukovic. When things are like not going his way, he has like these tantrums and starts (laughs) calling people pussies and questions their moral. Oh, yeah. He's certainly... An anti-hero at best. Oh, yeah. At best. Right. There is not a lot likable when you start peeling away the layers. But Cody convinces him by having the name. Yeah. My daughter's name is Roxanne Brown. She's in the hospital. For some reason, Chance decides, I'm going to call the hospital, and if the name matches, then that means the he's telling the truth. The story checks out. I would not even care if he was telling I know. the truth. I'm not going to risk this. I know. It's so stupid. And it doesn't really fit with his character, if I'm no, being real. It is a, a weakness in the story because he's such a fucking asshole to everyone. Why would he give a shit? This is the moment where he has a heart? Yeah, it doesn't quite fit. The part with Ruth where she's trying to get him to meet her son. Yeah. And he's just so dismissive of I it. I know. That made me sick. I know. So it's so hard to believe. That this is the same guy that's now because like, she's so pathetic. I know that she's thinking, well, maybe I could turn this into a relationship where he could be a either a stepdad or something, a boyfriend even, the because he's open. obviously going to keep his thumb on me forever. Yeah, I can't get out of this because even when she does provide him with information, it's not enough. It's never enough. She's never getting out of it because he's using her for sex too. Right. But she's so pathetic that she thinks. Well, if I let him have me, the sex, then maybe I'll get something out of it. I, you know, Maybe I'll get a father to this son that doesn't even live with me. How sad is that? And yeah, really. Oof. It's just a really grim scene. But yeah, I, he comes off as such a hateable asshole in that scene. Yeah, so it doesn't fit that he's right. suddenly letting this counterfeiting prick who wouldn't flip on Masters no matter what whose only contribution is going to be to take him to a print house. He's not even going to... Well, I guess he's saying that he will testify, but I wouldn't even trust him to testify. All you know for sure is he's going to take you on a field trip to his print house, maybe, if you can you know, keep him under control. But this is the guy you're going to be decent to? This seems like a risk. Well, not worth it. Meanwhile, Vukovic meets privately with some of Master's associates, including that attorney, Bob Grimes, whom he attempts to flip, Grimes, acknowledging a potential conflict of interest that could ruin his legal practice, agrees to set up a meeting between his client and the two agents who pose as doctors from Palm Springs interested in Masters' counterfeiting services. Masters is reluctant to work with them, but ultimately agrees to print them $1 million worth of fake bills. So there's a lot that we're going to have to go back and unpack here. Yeah. But first of all, this is the first time before Vukovic even says it, mm-hmm. that I wrote down, why doesn't Chance just kill this guy? Really? He does everything outside of the law, including get someone else killed eventually. Yeah. And he still is going along with some dumbass fucking plan. I know. And at a certain point in the movie, when you get to like the climactic sequence, 
how are this this even going to hold up? Well, I can answer that. They didn't actually break any law that would matter in a court of law. Yeah. Well, they did. I it's I guess they would have to come up with where that money came from, and I, I think they're thinking it's their word against Masters because Masters will say that they gave them thirty thousand, but who's to say that they, that they did? Right. Only criminals. Yeah, it seemed sketchy. And believe me, in the face of busting a guy like Masters, everyone will go along with that. Yeah, They're not yeah. going to think that these two guys were the ones that killed the <laughs> FBI. They would never even connect that. Right. They would be so far down the list of potential suspects. In this moment, when they do the original Masters meet, this is the one time that they've actually thought through the plan because when Masters' chick goes to check out their car... They've actually like put the tennis rackets in. They've got the paperwork to back up their cover story. Yeah. You would think, based on what we know of these guys, they would have fucked that up, too. Now, granted, they said they were from Palm Springs and they don't have tans, which comes up later. True. But Vukovic at the same time, like can tan. it's unclear to me why she has to go out and check their car knowing what we know later. Because by this point, when they go have the meet, with Masters, Vukovic has already gone to see Grimes because Grimes is the one that set this up. Right. But w- what do we learn at the end of the movie about Grimes? That he's behind this whole thing. That he was working with Masters to get rid of them, to set them up. Yeah. So why does she even need to go check their car? They know that they're fake. Right. Or I was she know. doing that because they were like, well, we need to make sure that someone is someone doing- could be scoping this out. Yeah. To make, make it I don't good. know. Or maybe Grimes hasn't told him yet. Like, maybe Grimes changes his tune later and well, decides to work for Masters again. I don't know. You could envision a scenario where Grimes was just setting this up in a win-win situation for him, and he's going to see how Whichever it plays side out. wins, yeah. I'm going to come out on top. Exactly. <laughs> he's like Mac and always sunny. Yeah. In turn, Masters demands 30000 in front money, which is what we were talking about, which is three times the authorized agency limit for buy money to get the cash chance persuades Vukovic to aid him in robbing a man named Thomas Ling whom Ruth previously told chance is bringing in $50,000 cash to purchase stolen diamonds so in addition to asking chance to play stepdad for a weekend she also attempts to use information to buy her way out of this arrangement says this guy's coming in with $50,000 to buy stolen diamonds but Chance isn't a regular cop. He doesn't really care. Yeah, it's like, what does that this. case mean to me? It's not fake money. That's all we're investigating. So initially he brushes it off, but now he knows that there's $50,000 of criminal activity money floating around that they could possibly get their hands on. Right. This is a whole other level of nuts now. I think that killing masters would just be so much easier, and someone like Chance should know how to get away with it. I don't I know. know why this plan suddenly becomes more desirable, which is what Vukovic says. Right. Just kill this guy. Seriously. It does seem like they really overcomplicate this. Chance and Vukovic intercept Ling at Union Station and seize the cash in an industrial area under the 6th Street viaduct. Ling's cover people follow them, and while observing the robbery open fire and accidentally kill Ling, Chance and Vukovic try to evade them through the streets, freeways, and even one of the flood control channels before a final escape by going the wrong way on the freeway. This is probably the peak set piece of the movie, and it is super cool. It starts with 
an abduction at a train station and then a daylight armed robbery. Right. What the fuck are they yeah. doing? I know. This is so out of control now. Under a bridge, I, visible kind of from the I bridge. know. It's not really like that concealed. Place. But I guess they're trying to just go fast. Most people are driving way up there at yeah. a high speed. They can just get this and get out. I love the setup too. When Vukovic and Chance have Ling in the car and they're not quite to that point where they're going to take him out of the car and rob him the audio drops out a couple times yeah and that really starts priming you for like okay shit's really gonna go down right for some right. reason when that happens in those moments you're like uh-oh something's yeah, happening yeah very reminiscent of the french connection the legacy of the chase scenes in that film which are often considered the peak of chase scenes definitely that legacy hanging over it friedkin not wanting to go into that arena again unless he felt like he could top it. Whether he actually tops it or not, I don't know. But certainly this movie doesn't have the reputation of the French Connection. But it is still really fucking cool. Absolutely. And yeah, when we talk about the sloppy violence, when these dudes are shooting at the gang, they accidentally kill the guy that they didn't intend to because a car crashes into the car behind them. Yes, And so, everything just moves on. So it's one of those moments where you don't put a lot of thought into it, but when you go back and rewatch, you're like, oh, yeah, this is kind of weird. The car chase sequence took six weeks to shoot. It was the last thing shot, apparently, so that if anything happened to the principal actors, the filmmakers would at least have the bulk of their movie completed <laughs> without having to replace anybody. They died. Legendary cinematographer Robbie Mueller declined to shoot the car chase because he didn't know how to set up such a scene. He was replaced by second unit cameraman Robert D. Yemen. Can't really blame him. He's more of an artist. This is definitely the technical stuff. How do you set this up right. and shoot it? It's crazy. Especially with a guy like Friedkin, who you know is flying by the oh, yeah. seat of his highly pulled up pants. Maybe not <laughs> doing everything up to code. It's unique in not only do they go the wrong way up the on-ramp and all of that stuff and the reverse traffic and everything, but it's cops being chased, but they've done the criminal activity. And then later we learn that some of their pursuers eventually will be police officers, right. which is cool. I've loved going over the train tracks and then that kind of awkward leap into the reservoir. Mm -hmm. And then there's sort of the fake ending because at one point they do get away from those initial two guys. There's a gunshot through the back windshield. The guys who are actual criminals, I believe, who Ling was going to meet. But then they end up in what feels like a complete ambush. And yes. it is confusing. And then ultimately they do have an explanation later. But in the moment, if you did stop to think about it, which obviously you're probably not because it's very exciting, you would be like, who the fuck are these people? What What is going on? I would say... Immediately you feel that way. Even though it is chaos, it something feels off about it all. Right. Why is there so much attention on this? There's a ton of cars, and there's a ton of cars shooting at them. Nobody knows what's going on because they're not police or anything. At least we don't believe they are. It is feeling more and more like films that we've discussed. Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, or the original Bad Lieutenant. What about Training Day? Oh, yeah. Very reminiscent of Training Day in a sense at least the second half of the film, because right. the movie does transition from this revenge tale focusing on Chance to sort of a transformation journey for Vukovic from regular run-of-the-mill nobody, run yeah. nobody generic guy to 
outlaw cop <laughs> doing whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> and he is constantly pointing out that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. This is wrong. But he just can't help himself. This is his baptism by fire. Yeah. Going up the wrong way onto the off-ramp, and then they're driving the wrong way into traffic. The freeway car chase was filmed with the traffic flowing backwards. While Chance and Vukovic appear to be driving against traffic, they are, in, in fact, going in the proper direction for the United States. It is the rest of the traffic that's moving on the wrong side of the road. Chance drives on the right side of the road, but the traffic is driving on the left. This was done to increase tension for the audience. It was also done because they wanted to get those smokestacks from the refinery or whatever they looked oh, really yeah. cool or something For and they sure. wanted to have it shot that certain way i will say it does give me anxiety watching the whole thing happen. feels yeah. weird too and there are parts where if you look at it from certain shots you're like wait a minute why is everyone driving on the wrong side of the road it <laughs> yeah. feels like you're in the uk or something but unless you were really paying attention to that kind of thing it kind of flies right by right. you it is strange though and i guess maybe a little bit explained after the fact, but not one on-duty police officer during any of this. This is a long sequence of the I, movie. It did cross my mind, probably the first time I saw the sequence, and in subsequent viewings, that this gets so out of control that it's impossible to believe that more police attention doesn't get drawn. I don't know what it was like in the 80s, so I can't speak to it directly, but Definitely by the time I was conscious yeah. of police chases, there were helicopters. Yeah. And there are no helicopters involved here, which is why they're able to eventually get away. Right. It reminds me of the old Grand Theft Auto games. <laughs> yeah, they were on five stars there right. by the end. <laughs> the idea for the into-traffic car chase first came to Peterson way back on February 25th, 1963, oh. when he fell asleep driving home from a wedding and woke up with cars coming at him oh and gosh. tried to figure out how to put this into a movie. Peterson himself did a lot of the driving and Pankow's stressed reactions are real, where he was like freaking out. Yeah. Because I could imagine Peterson was just going for it himself. I did one time leaving a concert in high school, took the wrong exit ramp, and got halfway down with traffic coming, and I backed down it. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was pretty nuts. There was a girl from my high school, a lot younger than me, I th who died in a car accident that way. I don't know what was going on, if there was alcohol or whatever, well, but it was, was the same thing. No alcohol here, just the MapQuest days. And if we got on the wrong highway, we weren't going to be able to follow these printed-out directions anymore. We were screwed. <laughs> <laughs> we were still, at least me. Yeah. We were still printing out directions when we went to New Jersey for something that was discussed on this podcast in yeah. a very early give us a second. That's true. We had printed directions in 2016 or 17 or whatever that was. No reason for it. I think it was probably just our phones would die from GPS. I don't know. I think yeah. it was a safety net for me because I didn't want to have to rely on my phone while I was driving. True. And yes, I could have had you do it, but I just, I don't know. I just had it. But we did actually turn to your phone at one point, and it took us to a random abandoned field an hour away from our final destination. So there was that. that. Was amazing. Anyway, back to To Live and Die in L.A. The next day, the end of their daily briefing includes a bulletin that Ling was actually an undercover FBI agent who was killed while engaging in a sting operation. Only a generic description of the assailants and their vehicle is given while Chance and Vukovic did not kill Ling, Vukovic is nonetheless consumed by guilt 
Yeah, they didn't kill him directly, but I think you're still going to face some charges for that death. I'd say so. While Chance is apathetic and focused solely on getting Masters, apathetic is almost an understatement. He almost violently doesn't care. (laughs) (laughs) Who gives a shit? Shut up. Yeah. This is what it's like out here in the Secret Service. (laughs) He's finally going to get what he wanted here. Unable to persuade Chance to come clean about their role in Ling's death, Vukovic meets with Grimes, who advises him to turn himself in and testify against Chance in exchange for a lighter sentence. Vukovic refuses to implicate his partner. Chance sets up the buy with Masters, who seems to hint that he is aware of the heist. I would say it's unclear if he's aware of the heist, but he does make a cryptic comment. Yeah. That I think is supposed to fuck with Chance a little bit, but if he was a little too specific, I think that Chance would back out of this up. immediately. He would know something was up. You're not wired, are you? Is this my package? Okay. You're beautiful. When do I get delivered? How about Friday night? If I don't hear from you by Friday, I'm coming back to get this. It's understandable. Oh, Mr. Jessup? Like your work? (laughs) Now, when Vukovic meets with Grimes and Vukovic asks how much it would cost him to have Grimes help him, Grimes says $50,000. The exact amount. I know. Vukovic is kind of dumb for a couple of reasons. That's the biggest one. That's like the exact amount of the heist. Mr. Ramsey's bonus yeah. being in the fake ransom note for Chambonet Ramsey. <laughs> it's the exact amount for Seriously. some reason. The second reason is this guy who, for some reason, has decided to help them set up his client is now abandoning that life-threatening plan mm-hmm. because, let's face it, he knows Masters is a murderer. So right. for some reason, he's abandoning that plan to then tell him to testify against his partner. And, and he, you know, it's like, dude, you don't see that that's weird? That I he's know. immediately telling you to get yourself both put in prison? Right. As if that could be an easy way to just get rid of both of you? Because no matter what, good luck ever getting a conviction on Masters based on anything that was ever tied to those two. No If kidding. they go to prison. You'd have to start in a whole new investigation with brand new people from scratch because it would always get corrupted or tossed out because of their involvement now. So, of course, Grimes, who's really working for Masters the whole time, is thinking, oh, well, yeah, just testify against him. He'll go away for life, probably, (laughs) because he's going to get charged with murder. They abducted that guy. And I don't think that when Grimes is telling him he's only going to have to go for a year and a half, I I don't think so. You might get a lighter sentence for testifying against him. And, yeah, it can't be too crazy because if it's – if it's too crazy, he might not testify. But, yeah, 
I, I don't think he's getting a year and a half. They are going to get charged with murder. Right. It's not going to be first degree, but it's them abducting the guy that, that got him killed. It, yeah. And it's a federal it, agent. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These guys are in over their heads. Vukovic thinks that he's somehow only going to get fired or something, and yeah. that will be it. <laughs> but even Vukovic's willingness to believe Grimes. I know. That's what I mean. He's just so naive. Yeah. Why would you trust this guy at all? First he's of all. He's a known criminal lawyer. Yeah, who was going to turn o- over his client to you? A yeah. guy who's just a counterfeiter? I know. That's too much. Not a guy who's murdered children. Right. A counterfeiter. He's like, oh, I don't like what Masters is up to. <laughs> it's actually an ingenious way to eliminate the people investigating a I guy. Know. Granted, your lawyer has to be that much of a criminal too. But True. The only explanation I can come up with for Vukovic's naivete in this moment would be desperation. He feels that much exposed by what Chance has gotten him into that yeah. he's just panicked now. And he's blinded by it. But in truth, we know that he was already trusting Grimes because they're getting associated with this whole Masters deal, which is a pretty... It seems crazy after one meeting at a bar with Grimes that... Yeah, I guess it's just a way to have a movie yeah. to make it smoother. <laughs> Friedkin filmed but did not include a scene in which Vukovic, nearing the breaking point prior to the final showdown with Masters, desperately tries to reconcile with his ex-wife... This deleted scene is found on the special edition DVD, along with an interview with Friedkin who says he doesn't remember why he cut it, but now regrets doing so. And I agree because the movie has shifted already. The audience may not have picked up on it, especially the first time watching it, but we've gone from Chance being the lead to Vukovic, and Vukovic's transformation is now the main story. He's been sucked into a world that he was not prepared for, and how is he going to adapt to it? And I think having that scene of him freaking out and trying to reconcile with his ex-wife, it just would have fit perfectly. I know. It would have clued the audience in that, oh, he feels like the lead now. Right. Because that memory of Jimmy Hart (laughs) getting killed is a million miles away. We do not give a shit about that revenge anymore. Yep. And it's mostly Chance's fault that we don't. Because he's insane. Chance and Vukovic meet with Masters for the exchange. After inspecting the counterfeit million, the agents attempt to arrest Masters and Jack, but Jack pulls a shotgun. Jack and Chance fatally shoot each other as Masters escapes. This is wild. Yeah. And I guess we weren't recording yet, but you were saying off mic that it's so out of nowhere and unexpected because there, there really doesn't feel like a lot of tension right before it. There's no film techniques being used here that build tension. It's very cold. It's very run-of-the-mill. Things are just moving along. And it is, again, an extremely bloody, violent death. And it is the lead character, or, or so we thought, getting blasted in the face right. on camera. Boom. And the more you watch the movie, the more you understand what's happening and understand what's happening with Vukovic specifically. But certainly the first time you watch this and you're invested in this character, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. It feels like a gut punch. Especially when you realize that the main villain, Masters, has slipped away, so we haven't even got to the final showdown, and this wasn't even it. So it's not, oh, it's ending on a downbeat. The downbeat is 20 minutes before the ending. So... 
under the this was all part of the master the Rick Masters master plan. Yeah. What exactly was supposed to happen in this exchange? I guess they thought that they could get the jump on them faster. Okay. But yeah, they did kind of wait a little bit, and I'm not really sure. Yeah. You do wonder if some of the twists and turns at the end weren't exactly <laughs> well thought, thought out all the way yeah. through or plotted all the way throughout, but it's nothing terrible. No, but no. yeah, if if they are aware the whole time of what's going on, then you would think they would know to get the jump on them faster. Right. Or why just, even bother? Why with, meet with these guys? Just keep why not just the kill them? Yeah, because isn't that what you're gonna do? Right. In the end, it is weird. I'm not really sure when Grimes told them. Maybe Grimes didn't tip them off till later, and this wasn't a master plan. It's kind of hard to tell. I know that's the thing. I think bo- you could get away with explaining both. It's open ended enough. But either way, Chance is dead. Yeah. The script originally called for Vukovic to die in the locker room shootout. At the last minute, Friedkin and Petrovic decided to change the story, having Chance die instead, and later showing Vukovic taking on some of Chance's characteristics. Their reasoning was that no one would ever expect the hero, even an anti-hero, to die before the climactic showdown. MGM was nervous about this and asked Friedkin to shoot a different ending, Friedkin shot an alternate take of the locker room shootout in which Chance is hit in the belly instead of the head, and he shot an alternate ending which had Chance and Vukovic being transferred to a remote station outside Anchorage, Alaska. (laughs) A lot of counterfeiting in Anchorage. Yeah, that's fun. Although the crew went as far as adding credits to this alternate ending, Friedkin hated this ending and insisted on the original. The alternate ending is found on the special edition DVD, he did screen that original ending at least once. I know that, but he always hated it. I think he always, deep down, intended to go back to this one. Mm-hmm. Even though the joke of Secret Service agents being stationed in Alaska is kind of funny, it right. would be really dumb and not fit the movie at all. Yeah, totally. That would feel like something out of a movie starring Dan Aykroyd or something. Yeah. <laughs> like a visual An gag. 80s comedy. Did they fly to Alaska and actually shoot something? Probably not, so it probably looked cheesy. I don't know. There is an edited and significantly shortened version of this film with a shrunken screen size and low resolution that was shown on television. In the credits for that version, William Friedkin's name for director and screenplay was changed to Jackson 4. One might suspect that Friedkin's contract allows for or even requires the removal of his name when the film is changed from his original director's cut. Love it. Vukovic pursues Masters, eventually going to a warehouse a previous informant had told him about. By the time he arrives, Masters has set fire to everything inside, destroying all evidence. Vukovic confronts Masters, and during a brief struggle, Masters asks Vukovic why he did not take Grimes' advice to turn his partner in revealing that Grimes was working on Masters' behalf all along. While Vukovic is stunned at the revelation, Masters grabs a board and knocks him unconscious. Masters then covers Vukovic with shredded paper and is about to set him on fire. When Vukovic comes round and shoots Masters, Masters drops his lighter and accidentally sets himself on fire. Vukovic shoots the burning man, continuing to pull the trigger of his empty gun as Masters burns alive. A little bit of uh, 
Khaleesi justice there. I think the one thing you risk with the chance surprise death is keeping the audience in it for this sequence. Yeah, that's why I think you need the scene with Vukovic and his ex-wife, and I would have put it before Chance gets killed. I don't know where it was. I'm guessing it may have actually been before this ending, after Chance is killed, but I would rather it have been before Chance is killed. That way the audience is clued in a little bit more. Agreed. Because I think the more times you watch it, you can understand the shift. Absolutely. But yeah, mainstream audiences, I'm not trying to do (laughs) normies, But, you know, your regular people who aren't going to obsess over this bullshit, which they are better off, believe me. Rightfully so. You shouldn't. They may not always pick up on stuff like that or be down for it. A lot of people wouldn't want that. They want the main character to be the main character, and that's that. But, yeah, I think you could have maybe added a scene or two to clue the audience in a little bit more and make Vukovic's transition feel a little bit more significant. Yeah, but it is an aha moment. That Vukovic is like, oh, I'm an idiot. But I think the first indication that he's going to embrace being the new chance is how brutal he is with Masters here. Oh, yeah. There's no thought of calling backup and arresting him now. Not after what happened in the locker room. He's going to kill him. God only knows how he's going to explain any of this and not go to prison for what has transpired over the last 48 hours. Seriously. But he's fully embracing that bad lieutenant Nicolas Cage life now. <laughs> it is crazy. It seems like there's going to be an investigation around Chance's death. You would think that that would lead to some weird questions that would be hard to answer. I guess the only one that's impossible to answer is how did you set up this meet? But I guess since both Masters and Jack are dead, who else he would even know? Well, Grimes ain't saying K? anything. Oh, no. He's not going to say anything. Bianca and Serena aren't going to say anything. They seem to just want to take... This is what they always wanted. The car and run. Yeah, now they're free to be together. A little bit of mirroring from the beginning, too, when you think about it, because Chance ends up shot in the face, just like his partner, Hart. Masters is burned up, just like the painting. We see him burning up the first time we lay eyes on him in the film. Dressed more casually, Vukovic visits Ruth as she packs up to leave Los Angeles. He mentions Chance's death, suggesting she had known all along that Ling was an FBI agent and she had played Chance, hoping for an escape. Mm-hmm. He knows Chance left her with the remaining cash, which the agency now wants back, but Ruth says she needed it to pay debts. Vukovic declares that Ruth is now working for him, turning into the same whatever-it-takes agent that Chance had been and stopping her efforts to escape her shady life. Who is it? It's John Vukovic. What do you want? Chance was my partner. I know who you are. What do you want? Did you know he was dead? I'm busy now. Open it. You going somewhere? 
I'm leaving the city. Well, there's a little matter of 20 grand that belongs to the federal government. Chance said he left it with you. You want it back. Look, part of that money was mine. I had debts. People leaning on me. I got ripped off for the rest. You set I... us up, didn't you, Ruth? You knew that what? Chinaman was FBI. I what? Are you crazy? Come on, don't shine me on. If you're gonna start by bullshitting me, we're gonna get off to a very bad relationship. What are you talking about? You're working for me now. So yeah, that left me a little confused as well because they reference a couple of times people wanting that money back. Even when Cody disappears, yeah, there's a scene where Chance goes and gets him, but no one seems to really care. And even when he's rearresting Cody, he says, oh, I didn't tell the judge that I lost you. How the fuck wouldn't it get back to the judge? I know. If Robert Downey's character knew, which he did, and they say something, so they're not telling the judge? Wouldn't this all be illegal to... I, I would say so. I feel like red flags would be going up. Seriously. Oh, we lost a fucking prisoner. <laughs> no, there's very little said about that. I know. It's very bizarre. So when Vukovic mentions the money and people wanting it back to Ruth, I'm like, who? Who even knew about the money? Seriously. I don't know. The Hard to say. Or is he just using that as further leverage on her? Well, that could be Knowing any- that she spent it, being like, oh, you're going to owe me now, honey. Anything's on the table at this point. Oof. Yeah, I wouldn't think that the money is really being questioned by anyone. I don't know. If anything, they may have contributed 10K because yeah. that was the max that they were allowed for a buy, but I don't know. But yeah, it's so briefly addressed, but Ruth- Fucking over Chance, which is a little bit different view than you would have expected from early in the movie. It's a really grimy, grungy movie. Yeah. Everybody is sort of empty and soulless, and it's kind of an indictment on not only 80s culture, but potentially Los Angeles, potentially law enforcement, both sides of the law, self-interest, equally, morally, bankrupt. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of that 70s film that I love so much, Night Moves, oh, yeah. with Gene Hackman, which Definitely. I know one day we'll eventually do it on the podcast. Just that similarly icky vibe where everyone's kind of a sleaze bag. Yeah, love <laughs> Which it. is a very fun world <laughs> to, to play in, at least. The weirdest part of the movie is the editing at the end of the film. So Vukovic is now in... Ruth's home in sort of an intimate way, although they are not physically intimate on screen, but there's sort of an implication that he's just going to inherit that role. Right. Which means having sex with her, I guess. But there's a lot of close-ups on her face, and then we go to some flashbacks of her and Chance having sex. So I guess they do return to it a little bit, but again, if we're talking about full insertion, it's so crazy I know how little sex there is, but okay. But then we very clearly, at least both in you and I's opinions, get out of the flashback, right? Right. Because I think we then see Vukovic again. I think so. But the last shot of the film is clearly Chance arriving at her home in his truck. And then it kind of cuts to the credits, which is very weird. And I'm wondering, is it it just a same shot from earlier in the movie? 
Because there is a part where he pulls up to her house the first time. I it think. may be, yeah. Yeah. So you're not sure if it's supposed to just be a memory, but if it is, it's weird that it's out of order. Because right. he was just nude on top of her a second ago, and now he's arriving at her house. So the memory or flashback is right, right. out of order, which is weird. Some people have speculated that it is an indication that he somehow survived. I That's don't nuts. understand how that would even remotely be possible. Shotgun blast to the face. Yeah, first of all, it would be impossible. Second of all, why even have a scene of Vukovic telling Ruth he's dead then? And then just to be like, oh, no, he's not. That What? What does that accomplish? I, Nothing. Yeah, really. My thought was, oh, maybe that was left over from the alternate version where he does survive, but that doesn't really make sense either. So my final- <laughs> Hey, John, we're heading to Alaska. My final assumption is- it is supposed to just be a flashback, and I don't know why it's out of order, mm-hmm. but it just is to be artistic. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why that's the last shot of the movie either. It's kind of a weird thing. I don't know. It is what it is. Ebert gave it four stars out of four. Mostly positive reviews from critics at the time, although with some key and strident detractors, the negative reviews were very passionate. I'm sure. Because a lot of people were like, what the fuck? This is so morally bankrupt. Right. So detestable. And well, that's the what level of violence was a bit much for a mainstream yeah, film. Yeah. Almost two decades later, a review in the digital fix called the film, quote, a sun-bleached study in corruption and soul-destroying brutality, this film by the notoriously erratic but sometimes brilliant William Friedkin is nasty cynical and incredibly good the film was voted as the 19th best film set in los angeles in the last 25 years by a group of los angeles times writers and editors with two criteria the movie had to communicate some inherent truth about the la experience and only one film per director was allowed on the list that's like one of my classic rules (laughs) number one should be inherent vice in my opinion absolutely William Friedkin himself singled out the movie as one of his favorite movies. I love the film and I value my films or don't value them in a different way. When I think of them in terms of success, I think of how close I came to my original vision of it. The two films where I came extremely close were To Live and Die in L.A. and Blue Chips. No, Sorcerer. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been funny if it was Blue Chips. Yeah, really. In 2015, William Friedkin announced plans to develop a TV series based on the movie for WGN America. However, in March 2021, WGA America was converted into the general news channel News Nation. And then, of course, Friedkin passed away Hmm. in August 2023. Probably wouldn't have been great. No, I don't think so. Not for WGN. No. That sounds like very low budge. Although, if Friedkin was directly involved on a low budget, we I'm saw interested. what he did with yeah. Killer Joe and Bug. Right. It probably I, I, wouldn't I'm have been terrible. Yeah. Which brings me to my last statement. I don't know how many people know this. William Friedkin's last film was released last year called The Kane Mutiny mm. Court Martial, which, of course, is a an updated adaptation of The Kane Mutiny, which has been made into films before, except it's set in present day. It was made for Paramount Plus slash Showtime. It came out in like October. I do not have those channels anymore, so I have not seen it. Kiefer Sutherland is in it. Jason Clark, Jake Lacey, who Matt likes a lot. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and Lance Riddick, who also passed away before oh. the film's release, just like Friedkin. 
I was unaware that this film even existed until a couple of months ago when I heard someone talking about it on a podcast, and they loved it. They thought it was really good, and it did get above 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. I do have Paramount Plus, so I should watch it. I kind of want to check it out because it was one of those things where Friedkin wrote the script himself, adapted it, Mm -hmm. got a budget, was allowed to film it, had 15 days to do it, got it done in 14. Wow. Guillermo del Toro sat by his side the entire time because he was sort of the insurance director because Friedkin was very old and did pass away very shortly after making it. So del Toro was there to actually step in if something would have happened. And it was apparently like a very great experience. That's a crazy story. I kind of want to see it. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to watch it. Which brings us to our segments. We've already taken care of email for this episode. And unlike last time's surprise physical media spotlight, I think we're going to just stick with recommendation Mm -hmm. this week. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. We actually made it out to the theater for a change. Unbelievable. On the list of things that are unbelievable, it's hard to tell which one is ranked higher that we're recording an episode of the show or going to see a movie. (laughs) Okay, so there's been a little bit of a change in the agendas of recent times, but... We're going strong. We did go to see a movie called The Zone of Interest, a film that both of us had wanted to see for a while. Mm -hmm. I think it was actually playing at that theater... A while ago, and then it was was gone gone for a week or two, and then it came back. Yeah, luckily, because we don't want to drive anywhere else. Right, yeah. I think if it wasn't playing there, then it would have had to have waited till streaming or something, (laughs) which most films do these days for me. Anyway, directed by Jonathan Glazer, correct? Yeah. For some reason, there's a couple other Glazers out there, Mitch, whoever, so I I kind of panicked for a second. And yes, Jonathan only really has... A film every, what, five, six, seven, sometimes ten years. years. His last film was Under the Skin, which was one of our very first episodes. Not a strong one, but an early one. A movie that maybe one day we'll do again for a revisited, although I don't think we have any immediate plans for that. No. Anyway, this film I didn't really know much about. I knew it had something to do with the Holocaust, although it was going to be done from a perspective where you didn't really see anything too graphic directly or anything like that. None of the people in the film are actors you would rarely know or anything Mm. like that. I think they're all foreign to America, at least. Obviously, they're local somewhere. Probably all German for the most part. It got nominated for Best Picture. And obviously, the reviews were through the roof. So I was anxious to see it. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what Matt's reaction was to it. I was, at first, annoyed. Okay. And I'll tell you why. But wait. I'm waiting. I thought, okay, well, I get the point of this movie. Yeah. But couldn't this have just been done with a sentence or maybe a paragraph? You know, do I need to see a whole movie of this? But then you, five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And then the things keep piling up and piling up and piling up. And then you realize you're kind of going crazy and crazy and crazy. And the audio keeps getting worse. You keep hearing things and right. then you realize. The child is hearing things, and it just keeps going and going and going. And then by the end of the film, I'm like, this is one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. Yeah. And you never see anything disturbing in it. 
except for some visuals at the end, but not nothing violent. Right. Nothing gory, nothing bloody. You never see anybody get killed. You never see anyone get hurt. And yet I was like, this is the most disturbing thing I've ever seen. It's so upsetting by the end of the I movie. Know. When we walked out of it, I was like, yeah, I liked it. I had a vision of what I thought it was going to be, and it pretty much was that. Although the whole thing at the end, I, I found like that was completely unexpected to me. Yeah, I do not want to spoil sure. that. It is right. so shocking and jarring that yeah. I was like, whoa. Exactly. And it really stuck with me. Yeah. Like, I found myself thinking about it that night, like, the next day. Yeah. And um, a lot of other people have kind of said the same thing in be- their reviews. Because the first part of it, you're like, yeah, this is what I thought it was going to be. And that's, like, an interesting angle, and it's a powerful thing, but not a lot of surprise here. Yeah. And then just goes on, and you're really like, oh, there's a whole other level to the darkness here. Oh, there's just so many levels. Right, yeah, there's right. so many things going on. There's so many layers. things to think about. And, yeah. Ugh. Certainly not uplifting. No. But really powerful stuff. And it, it really stuck with me for days after yeah. seeing it. And it, obviously with the movie coming out now and just the world in general and how the world is for the last uh, 10 years or so, mm-hmm. it's just been so crazy that you start to think about things that have happened in this country and other countries, and you're like, oh, geez. And when you think about history and you learn about history, a lot of times you think, how could this happen? How did this happen? Why were people like that? Why would they think that? How could everyone believe the same thing that's so dumb or whatever? And then you're watching it happen in slow motion in our lives, and you're thinking like, okay. And then you see a movie like this, and – I just think about the mother-in-law character and how what happens with her. Mm-hmm. There's so many things to consider with the different characters and the nuances, and it's basically like everybody has a certain tolerance level of it too. And some people can talk a talk and live a life, but then when they're too close to it, it's eh. yeah. But not enough to stop it, but just sort of like. Not for me, but right, right. you keep you got to keep doing what you got to do. But but then other people are just right up in it, right alongside it, right. it and just so detached and so, oof, yeah, it's Well, you haunting. just see like the darkest traits of humans in ways that you just never would have imagined. And then you realize that not only was this what it was like, but there's probably a million things that they didn't even think of right. to include that would have come up. Yeah, yeah. Too. It's just so grotesque. Oof. I don't want to get too much deeper into it because it's one of those movies that if you're in the right state of mind and you feel comfortable with it, then you just need to experience it. And there's really nothing we can say about it. You just have to see it and live it. Because anything we're saying is just going to be the same stuff that I was thinking. You know what I mean? We're Look, just going to keep conveying what yeah. I thought going in. You have to actually see it and to And it's, it's definitely... There was some impactful big movies for me of the current cycle that we're in the 2023 year in film but this is something that to me stands apart (laughs) from anything else yeah it's a movie that has zero percent chance of winning best picture but will be a movie that people probably remember right like if we're talking about 50 years from now adding movies to whatever the equivalent of the criterion collection is this would be one that they're like oh yeah of course yeah lock 
<laughs> okay. Whew. Anyway, check it out in theaters. I'm sure it's going to be on streaming soon. I don't know when that A24 HBO deal kicks in, but they were still going to Showtime, and then weren't they going to go to HBO now or something? I don't know. Whatever. It'll be on streaming soon. Sure. Rental. Anyway, thank you to Chris S. for the... Great pick. Listener request. Great pick. We love Friedkin. I don't know how much we're going to get to... It's obviously still possible that we'll do the French Connection at some point. Maybe Sorcerer. Sorcerer, I think people have mentioned it before, but it would be a tough one to do. That's true. It's a lot of existential journey in your mind and driving. And, yeah, long action sequences. Yeah, with with no talking. Right. What would I even use for clips? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That always must be considered. Anyway, yeah, so I don't know. I'm sure... It's possible we'll get to more Friedkin, but we've been doing a lot of him lately, so thanks to Chris. We're going to hear from another Chris uh, soon. I don't know if that's next month or whenever. I don't have the schedule in front of me. But, yeah, anyway, lots of Chris's. If you have a listener request or would just like to reach us, at GreatestPod on X, and you can email us, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read your email on the show. You can also ask us for a free sticker. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast, and if you get a chance, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That stuff really means a lot to us. Absolutely. As do the emails, as do the tweets, or whatever you call them these days, the X's, (laughs) the posts, whatever you call it. Any of that stuff, any interaction, we love it. We're still going strong. I know the schedule's whatever, but we got no plans on stopping, so hang in there. Stay subscribed. That's Please. the easiest way to to know when we actually get it together and post an episode. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Try to fatten our pockets. Us niggas hustle for the cash, so it's hard to knock. Everybody got their own thing. Currency chasing worldwide through the hard times, worrying faces, shed tears as we bury niggas close to home. Or was a friend that would ghost in the dark? Cold part about it, nigga got smoked by a fiend. Trying to floss on him, blind to a broken man's dream. A hard lesson, court cases keep him guessing. Plea bargain ain't an option now, so I'm stressing. Cost me more to be free than a life in the pen, making money off a cuss word. Writing again, learn how to think ahead, so I fight with my pen. Late night down, sunset, like in the sin. What's the worst they can do to a nigga? Got me lost in hell to live and die in LA on bail. My angels. LA, can't get no stranger, full of drama like a soap opera, on the curb watching the kettle bird helicopters, I observe so many niggas getting three strikes, tossed from jail, swear to being right across from hell, I can't cry cause it's home now, I'm just a nigga on his own now, living life thug style, so I can't smile, writing to my peoples when they ask for pictures, thinking Cali just fun and bitches, <laughs> better learn about the dress code, B's and C's, all the mother niggas copycats, these is G's, I love Cali like I love women, cause every nigga in LA got a little bit of thug in them, we 
might fight amongst each other, but I promise you this, we'll burn this bitch down, get us pissed, to live and die in L.A.